get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. September 11th, the streets could not wait. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole, and this episode is all about Blueprint Hoes. This one is like the blueprint of my life, like all the things that shaped me, like growing up. It's the 17th anniversary of the Blueprint album from Jay-Z. It's one of my favorites. A classic album in most eyes. A watershed moment for Jay-Z. Basically that. But there was so much else happening around that time in hip-hop culture and the world. That Blueprint album was what we needed in that moment. We had just lost a beloved rising star in urban music who also happened to be very close to Jay-Z and the Rockefeller crew. So weeks into our mourning of her loss, a good soulful, lyrical, deep album was what we needed. And it was birthed a lot earlier than anticipated. Moved up, moved up. up. I'm sorry, moved up. Up, up, we moving up. (laughs) But the day of its release would also happen to be one of the darkest days in American history. The exploding right now. You got people running up the street. Okay. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Okay, just uh, put, put Winston on pause there for just a moment. Okay, while the he... whole building just exploded some more. The whole top part. This album would also be our introduction to a new creative producer named Kanye West, who will become an artist himself several years later. Throughout this podcast, I'm going to share two interviews I did with Jay-Z. One, a week before the release of his classic Blueprint album in 2001, and another interview I did in the fall of 2002, right after the release of his Blueprint 2 album. It's like rap music is a competitive sport. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? You got to hold your spot down. you number one. People going to come for your spot. In between both Blueprint albums, we had the infamous Jay-Z Nas takeover Ether Beef. Yeah, I'll be dealing with truth a lot, too. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Truth, truth hurts, like, truth hurts like, like the singer. You right, know what I'm right. Also, this was when speculation of a relationship with Beyonce started to rumble. That's just my homie. We're not engaged. Mm-hmm. My homie. Well, break that down, Hover. Oh, and there was this really cool Michael Jackson story you have to hear. He, he wanted to do a, um, a remix. I was like, that's cool. We could do a remix and all, but you got to come to the hood. Like, people have been feeling you since the cartoons, B. There's also something you'll hear that may have been a forewarning to the future of his career. I'm the waste of your manager, BS, and you should just have it straight up with him. Like, fam, listen, I'm serious about what I'm trying to do. You ain't serious, and you got to let him go, man. This is Blueprint Hove. On the Backstory Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got the streets and up, bro. We had to, had to move the album up. It got too crazy out there. They, they want it. They want the album right now. Yeah. They need it. So let's get started. I went to go see the Jay-Z Beyonce on the run tour twice this summer. I really enjoy how they do tours. They take it to another level. The degree of detail, the over-the-top effects, the layers of breathtaking moments are tops in the music industry. I mean, you get your money's worth when you go see Jay-Z and Beyonce. So I saw their second U.S. date in D.C. in early July, and then I saw them in Miami in August. As I watched the show, there was one part when Jay-Z was alone performing Song Cry from the Blueprint album, and I had like an instant flashback to the era. All these memories started coming to me that I needed to share. So much was happening around that time in 2001, not just in hip hop, not just with Jay-Z, but in life and the world overall. So many lessons can be learned from that time. So as I watched them perform, I thought about how much of a watershed moment that album was, not just for him as an artist, but for hip hop culture. I mean, I'm watching him. And it's like 17 years later, he's on a global tour with his wife, Beyonce. They are both moguls now, parents of three, married for 10 plus years, just about billionaires, putting on a masterful show of lights, pyrotechnics, dancing, musicians. It's quite a show. The night I went to go see them in D.C., President Obama was in the house. The Carters are our musical royalty, still relevant 20 plus years in the game dropping all kind of gems of knowledge on us in their music, particularly in the visuals. They've learned so much being exposed to different people and cultures, and they share that knowledge with us, the fans, the folks that listen to them. 
I mean, go back to Jay-Z's last solo album, 444. There's so many brilliant lessons to be learned. Like, for instance, the story of OJ, which deals with black wealth disparity, racism. You know, he says, financial freedom is my only hope. F living rich and dying broke. Or family feud. What's better than one billionaire, too, especially if they have the same hue as you? Or this one line, a man that don't care of his family can't be rich. I could go on and on about Jay-Z and Beyonce, but they are definitely black excellence. And as for someone like me who knew Jay-Z early in his career, watching him on that stage in front of 70,000 people, like, I mean, it's been 23 years since I first met him. And I just remember this skinny kid with a thick gold rope on, driving a Lexus coupe, rimmed up with records in the trunk of his car, coming down to Philly to introduce himself to me just for a five-minute interview in freestyle. I really, literally watching him, I got chills. It's such a great story to tell. It's really a great American story to tell. A Jay-Z doesn't really happen as much in this world. And the fact that he's alive and is able to continue to grow and expand and share those experiences through his music is pretty remarkable considering the shelf life in hip-hop is a handful of years, not decades. Now, I work around a lot of young people, and younger people meaning 20s, early 30s. They know Jay-Z, but know him from albums in the last 10 years versus his first 10 years. They may have heard of Reasonable Doubt, but they don't really know about it. For some, the blueprint was that moment that they recognized who Jay-Z was, and that's not even his biggest album or biggest selling album. In fact, many don't know this, but I'll give you a little history. Jay-Z's biggest or best-selling album to date was a few albums before the Blueprint album, and it wasn't Reasonable Doubt. Now, here's a little bit of a disclaimer. In my first ever Backstory podcast, which was released earlier this year, Jay-Z, The Making of a Businessman, I shared my first four interviews with Jay-Z. The first interview was in 1995, which was 10 months before Reasonable Doubt. The second one was three months before Reasonable Doubt in 1996. The third was three weeks after Reasonable Doubt. And the fourth was a few weeks before the release of his second album, In My Lifetime, Volume 1. In that podcast, I broke down how Jay-Z was becoming a mogul before our eyes. If you have not actually listened to that particular podcast, I suggest you pause this and go listen to that one because it will really help you put things into context more, especially for my younger Jay-Z fans who don't really know all of his history. You know, one of the reasons I started this whole podcast series was so I could share some of these stories and leave this audio around for future generations for reference. I mentioned a few minutes ago about my first time meeting Jay-Z 23 years ago. I had the pleasure of interviewing Jay-Z a lot in those days. He was very hands-on with his career. They were independents. I mean, he and his business partners at the time, Dame Dash and Biggs, were like a mom and pop organization, but they were a growing corporation, a brand in demand. There have been some really legendary brands that have started in the black music lane and expanded. For instance, Motown was like Black America. Um, and they were pop music in the 60s coming out of Detroit. T.S.O.P., The Sound of Philadelphia, was soul music in the 70s coming out of Philadelphia. Def Jam was hip-hop coming out of New York City in the 80s and the 90s. Bad Boy was Puffy's brainchild coming out of Harlem. Death Row coming out of Compton. LaFace and So So Def coming out of Atlanta. I mean, Rockefeller was New York City, was Brooklyn, was Harlem, was a little bit of every part of New York City. But it was really the top brand in hip-hop, especially in the aftermath of the deaths of Biggie and Tupac. We really didn't know what was going to happen in 1997. There was a genuine fear of hip-hop finally losing its grip on American culture. After within six months, losing the top two stars to violent public deaths. I mean, it's all good when Buffy and Johnny can play these hip-hop songs, but when folks start dying, that's a whole nother issue. And the deaths of Biggie and Tupac didn't weaken or slow down hip-hop. It actually made it stronger. And today, hip-hop music is the most consumed music genre in America, surpassing rock music, and it continues to grow at a record pace. But before we get to the Blueprint album, I have to kind of catch you up on Jay-Z's history. Now, again, if you haven't listened to the first Backstory podcast, I really explain a lot of Jay-Z's history. So I'm kind of continuing from that point on. So you really go and listen to that podcast. And then from that point on, this is where I'm kind of taking you from the first two albums. I talked at length about those albums. Now I'm kind of going from that point on. And I'll get into Jay-Z's biggest album to date that nobody ever talks about. 
So when we last left off, Jay-Z released his second album, In My Lifetime, Volume 1. Many considered this a letdown to reasonable doubt, including myself. I've actually had long conversations with Jay-Z over his second album. Reasonable doubt was as about a perfect first album for a new artist to deliver. I mean, he had beats, lyrics, and a vibe of the streets of black America in 1996. What I grew to learn about a second album in my lifetime by M1 was that it was fine wine and acquired taste. You had to like marinate on it for a few listens. Now, years later, this album is not reasonable doubt, but it's a great follow up and it's quality. You should actually go listen to volume one after this podcast and judge for yourself and hit me up on social media. Let me know what you think. A Million and One Questions sets the whole album off. Primo, DJ Premier, produced the track. It's crazy. Um, it samples A Million from Aaliyah. Uh, the City is Mine with Black Street on the hook. Sunshine featuring Babyface. I discussed this with Jay-Z on the first podcast. We talked a little bit about how he was able to secure Babyface to do a hook for him. Babyface was the biggest artist in R&B at the time. Uh, imaginary Player. Um, now, I always mention Jay-Z. He was always ahead of the game. He sets this off. Like one of the lines on Imaginary Player was, I was popping crystal when y'all thought it was beer. I was wearing platinum when y'all thought it was silver. Again, go listen to the first podcast and you'll learn all about how Jay was always ahead of the game. And then this line from Imaginary Players. And, and it kind of still relates to music today that comes out from some of the artists that are releasing music today. He says, and now you got these young cats acting like they slung cats, all in they dumb rap, talking about how they fun stack. When I see them in the streets, I don't see none of that. My bad, playboy, where the F is the Hummer at? We're all the ice when all the platinum under that. Those ain't Rolex diamonds. What the F you done to that? It's so relatable to what you see today from artists. It's hilarious. He was just ahead of his time with the things that he was saying and doing. One of my favorite songs on the second album was Where I'm From. It's really the story of his life coming up through the rough and tough Marcy projects. I could go on and on again, but volume one, his second album was a good album and not a disappointment. So go listen to that and let me know what you think. And after just doing more research and just like, you know, taking a step back and looking at that time period and what else was going on, that album was sort of an experiment. If we back up a little bit, early on, Jay-Z was cool with Biggie, right? That was his fellow Brooklynite. Um, and Biggie was a street artist, but he had mastered how to stay on the radio with making those radio records, but still being that street dude. Making those radio records, those big records that could possibly go pop were the difference between a gold rapper and a multi-platinum superstar rapper. So Jay-Z was looking for that formula. He was looking to go from being a gold rapper, which is what he was on Reasonable Doubt, to being a multi-platinum superstar rapper. So his debut album was an indie deal that he got all the street cred. He got a lot of radio airplay, but most of his radio airplay was mainly like an East Coast thing. He didn't have massive radio airplay across the country. And he was looking for that look on the second album. And so he had the big deal with Def Jam distribution. Um, Rockefeller was growing. He had access to bigger producers. He kind of tried to take the bad boy model. In fact, on the second album, he went on tour with Puffy on the No Way Out tour. Puffy had sold 7 million copies on the No Way Out album. Puffy wasn't no rapper. He was an entertainer and he drops an album and sells 7 million copies based on this formula that he had that he actually kind of taught Biggie. So Jay-Z goes on tour with Puffy and Jay-Z kind of takes that formula for a second album and he makes these melodic songs trying to find these big monster records because he's looking for that big success. So the second album comes out. He only sells 138,000 out the gate and again, a bit of a disappointment, but he learned a valuable lesson and came back in 1998 with his third album, Volume 2, Hard Knock Life. So in the summer of 1998, it was kind of like the perfect storm aligned for Jay-Z. He kind of smarted over the second album because a lot of people said he kind of flopped. He kind of took a step back. And he was really determined to deliver a much stronger third album. So he put some time in on his album. He dropped two singles at radio. The first single was a song that sampled the theme to the Broadway play Annie, Hard Knock Life. One of the OGs in hip-hop, a producer named Mark the 45 King, I mean... He's a real OG in hip hop. You should Google my OG, Mark the 45 King. He makes amazing beats. Gave Jay a very clean, simple, stimulating beat. And then flipped the Annie sample in that beat. The song was an instant hit. What person couldn't relate to Hard Knock Life, especially if you grew up poor? 
pop audiences loved the Andy sample. This was the first time Jay-Z was receiving serious pop airplay. Now, remember, I was telling you this is sort of like a perfect storm. Now, remember, I was telling you this was like a perfect storm. Simultaneously, while Hard Knock Life was on every radio station, Irv Gotti, who was putting together his whole Murder, Inc. crew, they were really at the beginning of their era, produced a track for a new Jackie Chan, Chris Tucker movie called Rush Hour. The song was called Can I Get A? And it featured Jay-Z, Emil, who was the first lady of Rockefeller, and Ja Rule, who was his first artist on Murder, Inc. I had met Ja and Irv a few years earlier when Ja was on this small indie label in this group called Cash Money Click. Ja went solo and was starting to buzz, and he was coming out of Queens. So Can I Get It was like the perfect song for both Jay-Z and Ja Rule because Rush Hour turned out to be a monster worldwide hit, and the song was prominently featured in the film. The Rush Hour movie was one of the biggest movies in the world in 1998. So Jay-Z had another major song on the radio with pop and urban airplay. Remember, Jay-Z was searching for a formula for hits on his second album and it didn't hit. On his third album, he hit it big with two songs at the same time leading into the fall of 1998. And he releases volume two, Hard Knock Life. Timing is everything because this album was really on steroids based on those two singles. Remember, going back to the second album, Jay-Z was searching for a formula for hits and he didn't find it on that second album. So now he's on his third album. He hits it big with two songs and he goes into the fall of 1998 and releases Volume 2, Hard Knock Life. Timing is everything because this album was on steroids led by Hard Knock Life and Can I Get A? And it sells 350,000 copies its first week, going on to sell an additional 5.4 million albums. His third album was his best-selling album to date. Jay-Z becomes a superstar on his third album. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, a classic is born. You hear like a lot of soul music in it because those are things that I grew up on and grew up around. My mom's cleaning. On one of the worst days in American history. It is the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, both of them being damaged by impacts from planes. We saw one happen at about maybe nine minutes before the top of the hour. And just moments ago, so maybe 18 minutes after the first impact, the second tower was impacted with a, by another, what appeared to be another passenger plane. We've been telling people to support your album when it comes out and don't, don't get with these bootleggers, man. Yeah, that's like having a fake jersey. So people, they definitely, they just want to hear it. They just want to make sure when they go buy it, that is right. So I'm sure people go buy it. You can't, you can't have a bootleg in a car. You, you know, you pull up with the girl, and girl get in the car and you got the fake artwork. <laughs> <laughs> that's weak. That's like having a fake jersey or something like that. You know what I'm saying? That ain't hot. You can't have rims on your car in the boot, in bootleg seats inside. That was Jay-Z talking about not bootlegging his album. During this time in the late 90s and the early 2000s, bootlegging was a huge industry problem, mainly caused by forces within the business profiting off projects by stealing copies of the album, then mass producing them with fake artwork and selling them on the streets. So Jay-Z drops volume two, Hard Knock Life. The album is a huge success. 1998, he's on top of the game, touring all over the world. The following year, 1999, he drops Volume 3, The Life and Times of S. Carter. He sells 462,000 copies the first week. I have an interview I did with him from that album that I have to find where we went through all of his hits up until that point, and he told a lot of good stories about the music business, including this story about Can't Knock the Hustle and how him and Dame gave Mary J. Blige a brown paper bag full of cash to ask her to do the hook on that song. At some point on a future podcast, I'll release the those uh, tapes. So Volume 3, which was his fourth album, was fueled by Big Pimpin', Is That Your Chick, Do It Again. It started off better than Volume 2, meaning initial sales, but it doesn't sell as many units, going triple platinum, but still very impressive numbers. So now we get to 2000, and he wasn't going to drop a solo album. They were actually going to do a Rockefeller compilation album, but Jay-Z was so hot. On Halloween, they switch it up and drop the Dynasty, Rock La Familia, which was a nice setup for all of the up-and-coming talent that the Rockefeller label had, especially all the artists that he had from Philly. Freeway, Beanie Seagull. Early, early. 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 
Young, young Crazy. <laughs> young Gunners. All right, we're going we to take, let's take, let's take one more Ospino question. Out, out the Spino Spino. Spino. I can go on forever. Crack. I mentioned in the first Jay-Z podcast that Philly was one of the first cities to really embrace Jay-Z outside of New York. He would come there often. It's one of the reasons he picked the city to host his Made in America festival. He really likes the city, and a large part of the success of Rockefeller, the label, was fueled by artists from Philadelphia, Beanie Siegel, Freeway, The Young Guns, Petey Crack, all Philadelphia artists. Like, I just felt like, you know, like every area just has got a people like just hungry, you know what I'm saying? And they got struggle and that people want to hear their story. They just need that light shined on them. You know, I was fortunate enough to, um, I met Sadiq, you know what I'm saying? Sadiq bought beans up there and I just, you know, I love, I love beans, you know what I'm saying? Right. So anything he bring through there, you know what I mean? I, I embrace it like my family. You know, I love free, I was skiing on Sparks, Young Guns, PD Crack, you know what I'm saying? It just... I just felt it was y'all time. Like, y'all had, I mean, y'all had people to come out of Philly, you know, but not like this. Jay-Z likes to let you know that he owns the summer. He drops gems every summer, and that's his M.O. So in the summer of 2000, he releases a Pharrell-produced classic, I Just Want to Love You. In fact, a Philly guy gives him the hook, one of the guys that are down with the state property. It becomes one of his biggest singles and another radio smash and the lead single on the Dynasty album. But again, this was really supposed to be a compilation album and not a standard album. And sales were eh, which leads to this watershed moment in Jay-Z's career. He was due to drop another classic album. I mean, it was just destiny that he needed to drop one because in hip hop, you're only as good as your last album. There are many great artists sitting on the sidelines. So now we're into 2001. It's June, and we get this new song from Jay-Z. It's called H to the Izzo. It was a Jackson 5 um, sample of ABC, which no one had sampled the song before. It was a simple beat, but the way the sample was used on the beat, it sounded different, and Jay flipped it. The producer was a young, up-and-coming kid named Kanye West. Now, we knew him in Philadelphia because he had done some beats for Beanie Siegel's debut album, The Truth. This track was special. And again, it introduced the world to Kanye West, the producer, and it sort of set the tone similar to Jay-Z's best-selling third album. That summer, we were prepared for his album based on Hard Knock Life and Can I Get a H to the Izzo. We were really prepared for this next album. It was sort of like perfect timing. New producer, new vibe. So it's the summer of 2001. We set it off. He sets it off with this song. It races up the charts. It's a top 10 pop record. It's a worldwide song, again, that everybody's talking about. The Internet was around, but it wasn't accessible as it was now. So people had cell phones, but not everybody had phones. The phones definitely didn't have cameras. But something interesting happened, and it's just not a lot of footage of it, but it really happened. On June 29, 2001, Jay-Z is performing on um, his hometown radio station, Summer Jam Concert in New York City, and he brings Michael Jackson out to perform with him right when he does H to the Izzo. Now, Michael Jackson has always been a legend and someone you rarely saw. He never came to concerts, never came to somebody else's set. He definitely wasn't coming to an urban, hip-hop, grimy street thing. Um, for Jay-Z to pull that off, um, that, said who he, that said a lot about who he was in the industry at that time. Um, Michael Jackson had a lot of respect for him, and he just doesn't do things like that for anybody. I mean, anybody. There isn't really a lot of video footage of this moment, just one or two granny ones. You can Google it. You'll find it on YouTube. You'll actually find Jay-Z talking about it after the moment. Um, it's weird, though. Um, this random night in June in 2001 in Long Island at the Nassau Coliseum, Jay-Z, the king of hip-hop, brings out Michael Jackson, the king of pop. You got to Google it. It definitely happened. Turns out Michael wanted Jay-Z to do a remix of Rock My World, and Jay told him that he had to come to the hood. So this is real, I promise. And he agreed, shows up at the Summer Jam concert, then they record the remix, and we talked about it. All right, so what was it like working with Michael Jackson, man? I mean, we know that that's your man now. <laughs> you, can, you can pick up the phone, and Michael yeah. Jackson just like, yo, Hove, what's up? Yeah, yeah, that's what I did. I was like, yo, dog, like, he, he wanted to do a, um, a remix. I was like, that's cool, we could do a remix and all, but you got to come to the hood. Like, people have been feeling you since the cartoons, B. You got you to gotta come to a rap show. He was like, cool. Start singing Hard Knock Life on the phone and everything. It was 
It was crazy. I was looking at the phone like, nah. I know you was wowing. I was about to say. Nah, they were. Hard knock life over the phone? Yeah, like, yo, the rhythms. Like, he's talking about musically. Like, the rhythms, the way you rap, you know, the, the rhythm was so on point. And then he starts, baby, boom, bugging me out. Wow. Weird. So you're on his album and he's on yours, right? Well, he's on he's on the album now. We're doing a um, remix to this song called Girls Together, me and him for my, for my album. And then you're on his new, uh, forthcoming album, right? Yeah, that's the, yeah, the remix to that song, um, Rock My World. Did you actually go in the studio with him and do that, or you did it separate from him? Well, the first time I went in the studio, well, we didn't do the song. And the second time, I just came back and just did it. Like, he, he went he went to the store, so, you know, it only take me five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I was done by the time he... 50 grand, 50 grand, grand like, they ain't, yo, they ain't pay me. Because y'all, y'all talk about them behind that. They ain't pay me that money. <laughs> oh, they ain't pay you? Nah, man. That's all right. That's like a bet. Yeah. That's cool. Isn't that like an amazing story? I tell you, man, Hove is the go for sure. Not many artists can command the respect of other artists the way Jay-Z does. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast on the eve of the Blueprint album release, Aaliyah Dies. We looking for, you know, we just looking for the reason behind it. You know, we, I know it's a sign there somewhere because, you know, she's an angel. Right. Then, on the day of its release, the world is shook to its core. Mr. Bush said today we've had a national tragedy. Two planes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on the country. And we also have a report now that the, it was a plane that crashed into the Pentagon, and we have a large fire at the Pentagon. The Pentagon is being evacuated as we speak now. The White House has been evacuated as well. We're just really trying to get the young dudes out and let the young dudes establish their own labels so they can, you know, they build their little dynasties. That's what it's really about, black empowerment. Like, we we came up, you know, we got something that we could leave our kids and, you know, our family, and now they could, you know, it's time for them to do the same thing. Are you talking about the Carter faculty? Yeah, I mean, Carter faculty, Bleak got Get Low, um, Beans got criminal records. We're not playing over here, you know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the dude that's going to just have my artists and just, you know, milk them out of all their money and then just drop them and leave them by the wayside, you know? i got to build them up to be strong. Well, do you, do you uh, make sure that your artists appreciate what you're doing for them? Being that well, well, I mean, they really should. You know, it's not up to me to. I mean, that's that's within them, whether they're good people or not. Right. You know, and they're my family, so I know they're good people, you know, to appreciate it. I mean, I mean. And they, all they got to do is look around and they can see what's, what's, what takes place, you know. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast. It's the summer of 2001. Jay-Z has one of the biggest songs out, H to the Izzo. The stage is set for his Blueprint album, which is scheduled to be released in late September. Now, the year prior, Jay-Z did a remix with R. Kelly called Fiesta from R. Kelly's TP2000 album, which sparked a bunch of questions about a possible collabo album between R. Kelly and Jay-Z. We see now that Jay-Z likes to collab with other artists, famously touring with his wife. He did a tour with Justin Timberlake. And a little bit later on, you're going to hear about uh, a collabo that actually happened on an album. And it was supposed to be more to it, but it, ne- it didn't necessarily happen. But, man, I'm mad that it didn't happen. I wish that that would have happened. There's actually two collabs you're going to hear about in a few more minutes in this podcast. But back to R. Kelly. He had a natural chemistry with R. Kelly, so it only made sense that they do an album together. Biggie had done tracks with R. Kelly as well. Biggie helped co-sign Jay-Z. So in my first Backstory podcast, um, I talked a little bit about the relationship between Biggie and Jay-Z, and Biggie was in the Dead President's video. You can Google it and see it. Biggie and Jay-Z did the Brooklyn's Finest track together on Reasonable Doubt, and then did a song called I Love the Dough. Many don't know this, but Biggie and Jay-Z were supposed to do an album together before his death under the name The Commission. We talked about these collabos, and he had dropped some other news. I, I'll be honest for you. I got to break this news right now. We got like five songs we've done together. I don't know what's going to come, what's going to happen with it. But Kobe, we definitely Kobe. got five songs. We done it, and they're incredible. Yo, man, dude, if y'all come out with an album, it's well, the game's already over. But yeah, we got five songs. Just we just laying in the cut, like just. I mean, just on just just vibing, like not not even not even on no whatever what we gonna do with it. Just we just respect each other, um, art, and we just vibe and just did like five songs. Man. Are you gonna do, call yourself something, or you just be Jay Z and, and R Kelly? Oh no, man, it, it depends, man. That commission never jumped off. No. No, nah, I can't use that. We know what that was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even to this day, that's a scary thought. Every time, like, if I hear Brooklyn Finance, I'm like, ugh. That's, that's, yeah. woo. Yeah. 
Jay-Z, Biggie Smalls, the whole album. Here's some food for thought. Things that I think about, and you can tweet me about this. If Big and Pac never died, I can only imagine the collabo projects and tours we would have been able to see. I mean, Big, Pac would have been cool again. Pac was starting to see the light and trying to rid himself of Suge. Jay-Z and Big would have been a dominating force with a slew of artists under their belt. I mean, Little Kim's career would have taken a different course if Big would have lived. I truly believe Pac would have gotten into politics they would have all been a powerful force right now. I think the hip-hop industry would have been even stronger than it currently is. The music and impact on culture we missed out on because of the death of those guys is an additional layer to that tragedy. Just a random thought. You could tweet me about it. So anyway, let's get back to Hove. The man was working hard with his label um, and his project. Rockefeller was a name brand of quality building in every hood in America. They were working on their own alcohol, Armadale. The clothing line was taken off. A few years later, they did a sneaker line with Reebok. They were jumping into the movie game, too. In fact, I asked them about the movies they were working on at that time. Jay-Z was kind of doing it all. We got like four movies coming out. Right? A lot going on, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Paper Soldier, that's the one about, um, it's like the James Bond bandits. That's these kids that was out of Jersey. They was just like, it's a real, this is something real, too. It's a real story. Like, they was like robbing Phil Simms' house and things like that. And they had the, um, um, cars with the flip license plates and the smoke and all that. That's why they call them the James Bond bandit. But we couldn't use that name, so we had to use Paper Soldier. And you also got the other one that you're doing on the, uh, in Harlem, right? The- yeah, yeah. That one's completed right now. We're just trying to put the um, soundtrack, putting the, you know, the score and the soundtrack together right now. Wait till y'all see Cameron's his album. Oh, he killed Kill- it. Oh, his album? Kills it. Kills what? It. Amazing. Like, for real. Like, wow. I mean, physically. For real. He's, he's going to get so many, so many jobs after this one right here. Wow. Man. Yo, man, how, do you ever take a vacation, man? It seems like you just, you constantly working. <laughs> you putting albums out, movies. When does, when does whole rest? Nah, man, no rest, no rest, man. Rest when you're dead. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I enjoy what I do. That's 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 the thing. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it's not a, it's not a need. It's not a need. It's not on a need basis for me. You know anymore? It's August of 2001. H to the Izzo is the biggest song of the summer. Everyone's anticipating this Blueprint album coming. Then on Saturday, August 25th, 2001, something very awful happened that would shock us all. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. A breaking story out of the Bahamas tonight. Authorities have confirmed that R&B singer and actress Aaliyah is among eight people killed in a plane crash. Yeah, the plane crashed as it tried to take off from the island of Abaco in the Bahamas. Nine people, all Americans, were on board that plane. One man survived the crash and was taken to a nearby hospital. The plane was leaving Marsh Harbor Airport around 3.50 local time when it went down. Aaliyah and her crew had been shooting a video in the Bahamas. The plane was taking the group back to the United States when it crashed. CNN is reporting that baggage handlers said the plane was overloaded with suitcases and that the handlers and the plane's pilot complained about the heavy load. But they say passengers insisted on taking everything with them. Man, I remember this like it was yesterday. I was doing a live broadcast from a club in Philly. Back then, we didn't have social media. We had two-way pagers, and it started to float around that Aaliyah had died. So I started hitting people up to confirm. Then we got confirmation. It was really devastating for all of us. Aaliyah was just one of those people you would just never think would die. She was so beloved by everyone, especially kids. I mean, how do you explain this to children? Her music was all over our radio station. I mean, she was the princess of R&B for sure. We would play three to four songs per album when she would come out. At the time of her passing, she was dating Dame Dash. I met her when she first came out in 1994. Uh, My friend Juliet Jones, who was now the executive vice president of promotion for Atlantic Records, introduced me to Aaliyah when she was a teenager. And uh, several years later, in uh, 2000, I was at the Notorious KIM album release party in New York City, and Aaliyah was with Jay-Z, and I went over to him and started speaking to him, and he introduced me to her. I remember that night because Jay-Z had a Golden State Warriors jersey on, and if you ever see a picture of Aaliyah and Jay-Z, and Jay-Z has this Golden State Warriors jersey on, that was that night. So for Jay-Z, Dame, and the Rockefeller family, this loss really hit home. It was beyond devastating for them personally and professionally. I mean, here they are preparing for the release of this masterpiece of an album, and Dame loses the love of his life in a horrific fashion. It was a rough time for all of them. I mean, we got, we got you know, it's a lot 
lot of family. We got a lot of people around us. So, you know, everybody is cool. You know, everybody is strong. We just... We looking, for, you know, we just looking for the reason behind it. You know, we, I know it's a sign there somewhere because you know she's an angel. Right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So we we, we doing good. We holding up. Okay. As they fought through their grief, they're also fighting the forces of bootlegging in the music business, which, depending on the artist, could shave twenty to thirty percent off sales. So you have to be calculating when releasing an album at that time to reduce the impact of a bootlegger, which are usually insiders at labels. Sometimes it's people within your own camp who do that to make money on the side. Uh, a few years earlier in 1999, Jay-Z was so infuriated over bootlegging of his previous album, Volume 3, The Life and Times of S. Carter, it came to a head in a very public way that almost cost him everything. Detectives in Midtown say that last night allegedly was one of his darkest Cops say the hip-hop star was fingered in a stabbing inside a packed nightclub. Just about 11.30 last night when rap star Jay-Z, surrounded by his usual entourage, strolled into the Kit Kat Club here on West 43rd Street. Once inside, he had a confrontation with record producer Lance Rivera. Cops say the argument heated up during a party celebrating a new release by rapper Q-Tip. Jay-Z and his crew surrounded the 33-year-old Rivera and his 29-year-old brother Corey. Witnesses say that... Jay-Z allegedly plunged a knife into Rivera's stomach and smashed a bottle over his brother's head before running out of the club. There are a lot of stories floating around about what happened, but keep this in mind. The man that Jay-Z supposedly stabbed, Lance Unrivera, was Biggie's former business partner, and Jay and Big had a close relationship. According to Jay-Z's book, Decoded, he was livid when he found out that his album was bootlegged a month in advance. Keep in mind, the album before that, he had sold almost 6 million copies. He was a superstar. He comes out with this next album a month before its release is bootlegged. He was very upset at the label, and he kept hearing that Lance was the one responsible for the bootlegging, and they happened to cross paths at a Q-tip album release party, and a stabbing took place. In the Decoded book, Jay-Z admits that he blacked out. Now, he was so lucky that he didn't really do a lot of damage because just a few weeks later, there was another major incident in a club, but this time it was a shooting, and it involved Puff, J-Lo, and Shine, and this threatened to put Puffy away for a long time. Jay-Z was seeing what was happening with Puff and quietly took a plea of three years probation and moved on with his life. Puff and Shine went on to trial, Puff got off by the skin of his teeth and Shine went to jail for several years and then was deported. That situation could have totally gone different for Jay-Z and he knows it. So the bottom line is Jay-Z wanted to avoid any kind of bootlegging of his album. You got to go get the real joint. You can't have you can't have rims on your cars and bootleg CDs inside and fake jerseys and not not, not the fitted caps, you know, the cotton and snap. You can't have that, man. That's imaginary play. I told you about that in 96, 97. See, the problem with the music business is once you deliver the master copy of your album, you have zero control over what happens next. There are several different places where multiple bootleggers can swipe a copy. That's why things are so much different now with streaming. Labels have no access to the music. The major artists just deliver both to the labels and the streaming services at the same time. They're so meticulous on the release of albums. They even leak their own music now, eliminating all of the bootlegging problems that used to happen in the music business. Back in the day, albums used to have concrete release dates because they would print artwork for it. They would have to go into retail and put signs up and all that stuff. And so what would happen is because of bootlegging, dates will become fluid. So originally... The blueprint was scheduled to come out September 25th, 2001. Jay-Z goes on to explain it in his own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got the streets and up, bro. We had to, had to move the album up. It got too crazy out there. They, they want it. They want the album right now. Yeah. They need it. It's, it's nervous. <laughs> it's nervous <laughs> they need man. it. So first of all, man, the blueprint album um, has been moved back. Moved up. up. Moved up. Moved up. I'm yeah. sorry. Moved up. Up, up. We moving up. Moving <laughs> <laughs> on up. What, did you make that call? You just decided, look, I'm throwing it out there early? Yeah, well, Actually, it was the 18th. Like, it was the 25th. Then I said, nah, nah, man, can't wait. You got to move it to the 18th. Then I was like, man, let's just move it to the 11th. I'm ready to drop it tomorrow. So the album, originally coming out on the 25th, is now slated to come out on September 11th. He was also going to do a very small, intimate tour, which is, by the way something he would do on all the projects. He would do some sort of promotional tour on every album that would come out early in his career. 
this is how I was able to get an interview because he would make a point to do key cities and do radio and do some sort of promotion for every album. And that's how we developed a rapport. Um, in 2006, when he released the Kingdom Come album, he did seven shows across the country in 24 hours. It was quite the run for one day. And in each city, he would pick up a winner and take them to the next city on a private jet, culminating in one big party at the end. Rockefeller and Def Jam did some spectacular promotions around his albums, unlike any other labels. So for the Blueprint album, he did something called the Blueprint Lounge Tour, which which put him in much smaller venues. And I asked him why the scale down since he was a much bigger artist at that time. He was doing large arenas and he decided to scale it down for this album. Because I've been in like um, 20,000 seaters and things like that. It's not intimate. You can't really see the people. You can't really feel them. You know what I mean? I just really want to get to the real core, core, core Jay-Z fan. You know what I mean? You have people in the building because they like the single or you know, whatever, what have you. And these small ones, you know you just weed out everybody. You just got the core Jay-Z fans in there, and it's just, you know, an experience. So I interviewed Jay exactly a week before the release of the Blueprint album on September 4th. I remember the label getting us the album that weekend leading up to its release that following Tuesday. The album was a breath of fresh air, a very soulful album. We hadn't heard Jay on tracks like this, and he talked about the energy of the Blueprint album. Basically, my album like really deal deal with life, like you hard knock life, and you know lifetime volume one. This one is like the blueprint of my life, like all the things that shaped me, like growing up. You know that's why you're, you're like when you, you hear like a lot of soul music in it, because those are things that I grew up on, I grew up around. My mom's cleaning the crib with the windows up, with Ajax and all that, mm-hmm. playing the soul music and Marvin Gaye bumping and all that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I also talked about this in my Kanye West podcast. If you go back a few podcasts, you can hear uh, me and Kanye talking about it. And also this being an introduction to Kanye West. Kanye had a song on his first album called Last Call. It's like 12 minutes long, but it's sort of his story in a nutshell. And he talks about playing beats for Jay and how he reacted to first hearing them. Jay feeds off a great beats. It's well known that he does everything off the top of his head. And so a good beat is everything to Jay-Z. Previously, he had that kind of connection to other producers like DJ Premier. I mean, think about the collabs they've had. A Million and One Questions, So Ghetto, D Evils, Friend or Foe. Those two together were very special. Or famously, the collabs he's done with Timberland like Jigga What, Dirt Off Your Shoulders, Suit and Tie, and of course, Big Pimpin'. That's the biggest song that they've done together. Then there's Pharrell. I told you about I Just Want to Love You, Front, Excuse Me Miss, Allure. Jay has collaborated with a lot of really good producers over the years, but the Blueprint album was all about Kanye West and Just Blaze. Perfect alignment of production stars. Just Blaze gave him Girls, 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 You Don't Know, which is always awesome for Jay to perform, and the timeless song Cry. By the way, Just Blaze gave him PSA on the Black album, too, and December 4th. But Kanye and Hove on Blueprint was very special. In addition to the smash, H to the Izzo, Takeover. Just the track itself was amazing. I mean, it was a diss record, but that track was simply amazing. So many layers to that song. Heart of the City, Never Change is my personal favorite song off of that album. The Blueprint album had everybody's attention. It was an instant classic. Yes, yeah, like the blueprint of like everything, you know, everything that shaped me as a person. It's the blueprint for rappers, man. Teach you how to make albums. <laughs> <laughs> so modest, Jay. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> But what we didn't know was that on the day that this classic album would be released, world events would forever change all of our lives. On the morning of September 11, 2001, it was a beautiful late summer morning on the East Coast of the United States. Just another day. I was doing mornings in Philadelphia at the time. I was on the air, and we were talking about the Jay-Z album and how good it was. We were playing a couple of cuts. We were also still mourning the loss of Aaliyah. We had a TV in the corner of the studio, and a few minutes before 9, we noticed that one of the Twin Towers in New York was on fire. Uh, The Today Show or Good Morning America was on, and you you could see it on the TV. Speculation was that it was a fire. Then quickly it was confirmed that it was a small commuter plane that crashed into the building. We casually mentioned on the air that it was going on. Then a few minutes later... We're live on the radio, and another plane crashes into the other tower. It was actually surreal watching this happen on live television. All of a sudden, America was under attack. Then word spread that there were several other planes that had been hijacked. One was flying over Pennsylvania, eventually crashing in a field in western Pennsylvania. Another plane crashed into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., 
Thousands of people died that day, including hundreds of police, fire, and EMS officers. These first responders rushed to the scene, and many died in those Twin Towers. All of the airspace in the United States was shut down for several days. All planes were instantly grounded. It was unlike any other time in American history. Jay-Z was doing his Blueprint Lounge tour, and he had to reschedule a couple of the dates. Several weeks later, he had his date in New York City, and this was one of the first concerts in the city since the terrorist attacks. In fact, just going back on September 10th, the night before September 11th, Michael Jackson had a huge 30th anniversary concert at Madison Square Garden, and he was so freaked out about what happened on 9-11 because he was trapped in New York for several days. Again, you couldn't fly anywhere. You couldn't go nowhere. It was really such a strange time. So two weeks later, Jay-Z had his blueprint date in New York, and I went to go see the show in New York. I remember driving up to the city and not seeing the Twin Towers for the first time. They had these beam of lights uh, shining up into the sky. It was a very emotional night for the city and for Jay-Z to think about all that had gone on the previous few weeks. Even though New York is a very large city, I mean, 20 million people in the city, um, in the region. This was very personal to everyone. There was some direct connection who was lost in those towers or who knew a police officer or fire official. Uh, Jay-Z actually donated funds from every ticket sold on that entire tour to 9-11 relief organizations. It was definitely a very sad and unique time in our history. And the Blueprint album was birthed on that day. It is considered by many to be Jay-Z's best album. If not, it's in his top three. The album sold 427,000 copies in its first week, despite what was happening with 9-11. There was some controversy over the Takeover song, especially from Nas, but we kind of knew about this song before the Blueprint album came out because if we went back to June that night when he brought Michael Jackson out, it was actually the first time he premiered the Takeover song, just a version of it. He put a full song on the album, but because of 9-11, just people weren't dealing with it. But it would heat up several months later. So let me fast forward a little bit to kind of take you away from what happened with 9-11. So we're now in December of 2001. Nas was preparing to release Stillmatic, which featured his point-by-point rebuttal of TakeOver. Put it all on a song called Ether. Jay-Z would counter a few days later with a song called Super Ugly, which was a very personal attack on Nas and his baby moms. It was just a really ugly personal response the wounds went deep between them jay-z really took it too far and his mother actually supposedly told him that he needed to apologize and to his credit he actually went and publicly apologized to nas i think he um was prolonging it to um come back try to come back with something and uh, release something on his album but um I'm done with it, you know what I mean? It was a fun battle, the biggest battle hip-hop ever seen. And because of it, I think every a lot, every rapper now is trying to relive the moment by battling each other. And it's like, it won't end. Like, everybody's battling now. But um, I hope it all stays on um, wax and stays peace. Let's fast forward to 2002. It was Hot 97 in New York, their summer jam again. This time, Nas had a great run. Stillmatic was a great album. I mean, it actually, I think... All of that stuff, that takeover, all of those, that that song, that energy made Nas better because he came out with just a great album in Stillmatic. He had a great year in 2002, and he's headlining Summer Jam, and he wanted payback on Jay-Z. So he had planned to hang a robotic Jay-Z dummy when he performed Ether. He was setting things up before the show, and station management told him that he could not go through with that stunt, which infuriated Nas, and he refused to perform and left the venue. At that time, there was a new radio station in New York City called Power 105, and I happened to be a part of the team that launched that station. I was the music director. On that hot June night, Nas shows up at the station, our station, and he wants to go live on the air, and he just comes on our radio station and just decides to start going in on Hot 97, going in on Jay-Z, going in on everything that was happening. It was really just Nas being who he is, super transparent on his feelings. The interview had everybody locked into our station. It really put us on the map. I mean, if you didn't know 
who we were, what we were about, you did now. Jay-Z wasn't even in the country at the time. And several months later, I ended up coming back to Philadelphia and actually becoming a program director and having my own station. And I interviewed Jay-Z and we talked about this and we talked about him versus Nas because I had never really had a chance to talk to him about it. And we talked about this incident. Over the past year, there's been a couple things going on. Last Christmas time, you guys had the two songs take over and then he had his song. And then this summer, the station I used to work at in New York, this concert came about. He was supposed to perform in this concert. Yeah. He didn't perform in the concert because they wouldn't allow him to do something. So he comes to our radio station, and we at the time, we you know, it wasn't our concert, so it was a big deal. He gets on the air, and he's mad, and he's spewing all the stuff at you. And I was standing right there, and he was mad. He was like, he was just mad. Like, he just felt that he just wasn't getting the respect, and... and he was coming at you big time. And at the yeah, time, yeah. you wasn't even in the country. Yeah, I was in the South of France. I was on a big boat, like, chilling. So, did somebody give you the call and let you know what was going on over there? Yeah, I got the call. I got the, well, I got the phone call. I had the global phone. Okay. <laughs> on the global phone, because yeah. he was on a boat in the South of France. Yeah. How do you, like, squash all that to the people outside? Because I know in this rap game, y'all just going back and forth on the... On right. The, on That's the what, I mean, every chance I get, you know what I'm saying, every, um, you know, medium, whether it's TV or radio, whatever I'm on, I just let people know that, come on, man, this is music. We've been doing this for a year and a half. Nobody even hit these, threw a spitball at each other. You right. You know what I'm saying? It's, right. You're just making music. It's like rap music is a competitive sport. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? You got to hold your spot down. You're number one, people going to come for your spot. You know what I'm saying? But you're a funny dude, man, because you, you be dropping them little one little lines and songs and stuff like, and I'm telling yeah. you, it, it got under his skin. He was mad. Like, he yeah. just, he just, he just, he just snapped that night. Yo, I be dealing with truth a lot, too. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Truth, truth hurts. Like, truth hurts. Like, like the singer. You right, know what I'm right. Like, people, they just deal with um, whatever rhyme. You say anything out their mouth. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I deal with truth a lot. And that's why it hurts a little more. So I be, I got to be careful with the truth that I got. I moved on. You know, battling is good for hip-hop. Is 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 the essence of hip-hop. But as long as, you know... It don't go out into the streets, you know what I mean? Everybody got money now that's rapping. Everybody got an army from the hood. Everybody got enough goons, but it's senseless. It don't, it don't even matter. His follow-up to the Blueprint album was the Blueprint 2, The Gift and the Curse. It was a double album. I was now back in Philadelphia after my short run in New York, and I was working on a new station, and they were throwing me a welcome back to Philadelphia party, and I asked Jay-Z to do a show for me in the fall of 2002. He was a superstar. And it just so happened that he was releasing this Blueprint 2 album and it worked out perfectly. And he said, man, if you can arrange it, we'll make it happen. And he did it for me. So he did a show for me and then he came to the station and we did this big interview. And so I got a chance to ask him just a million and one questions and we had a chance to catch up. It was really a great night. And actually on the show, which was interesting, Kelly Rowland happened to be in town because she had a solo project out on Columbia and she came to the show. But anyway, we asked all, I talked to him about all kinds of stuff. For instance, this is when he was really starting to expand his musical horizons. You know, like I asked him about his musical taste, which went way beyond hip hop. I listen to like all type of music, you know what I'm saying? Like my, my music taste is weird. It goes from like U2, you know, like rock music, Nora Jones. And it's just bug, man. I keep the classics in there. It's like Biggie Smalls, Life After Death and uh, Tupac, Me Against the World. Um... You know, I just keep all the classics in there. And I wanted to know, could he explain his success up until that point? You know, how did he get this far? Because it's an amazing success story. It's a gift. I mean, I don't know how it gets channeled through. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of things that I say or a lot of things I know, I don't even know I know it. Like, I don't know that word. You know what I'm saying? It's just just truly a gift. It's a gift. I asked him about entrepreneurship and how important it was to him and his team. I'm comfortable with myself, you know what I'm saying? I have no ego when it comes to my friends, you know? And I want everybody to have everything I got, and I mean that, you know what I'm saying? I'm not just saying that because we're on the radio. Like, I want everybody to have everything that I got. And if they're willing to work for it, I'm I'm willing to give them the opportunity, all right? This would obviously be a theme in his life and would lead to where he is now as a businessman and his relationship with his wife and all the things that they're doing as entrepreneurs. At that time, one of the biggest songs... And Philly was what we do, and it was a big Rockefeller song, and Jay-Z, Freeway. It was just a great Philly classic, and we talked about that. Now, Jay, the first time all of you guys heard this track, tell me what that was like in the studio. Uh, I think Free started this one by itself. That's how 
It was so crazy. Everybody was trying to get on this one. I had to throw a verse on it quick. Gotta kill witnesses because free beards sticking out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all that was off the top of the head. Yeah, we just did it right there. Wow. Free got him one. We shooting a video to that Saturday. Here in Philly or where y'all shooting it at? I don't know, man. I think... Nah, maybe New York. Okay. I might I might take free to Brooklyn. Okay. That's, that's, a, hang out in that's, Brooklyn. that's the street anthem right now though. Everybody's yeah, like every, everybody's right on that right there. Yeah. That's it. And it's we was a, performing that on like a um alternative we went on an alternative The Sprite um, Liquid Mix store, right? Yeah, yeah. Um and they was they never heard this song. This was like what six months ago. Mm-hmm. And they never heard this song and they was just rocking. Yeah, it's that track yeah. is infectious though. Yeah, yeah. It's every the every head is like freestyling off of that track now. Yeah. One of the people he collabed with on this project was Lenny Kravitz on a song called Guns N' Roses. And we talked about a potential album between them and other collabo projects. Yeah, I just wanted by expand. Like this, I listen to rock music all the time. I listen to all type of music. You know what I'm saying? I just want to know that we can make any type of music long as it's made with integrity. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? My tech integrity is there. And and you, you know? and Lenny Kravitz. Yeah, Lenny Kravitz. His integrity is phenomenal. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. He's he, his respect. He's respected in the rock and roll arena, sort of like I am mm-hmm. in the rap field. And the guy writes. Um, arranges, produces, and plays every instrument on his album. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. me, and, me and you had a conversation off air a few minutes ago, and I was telling you that the, my favorite song on this new album is "Excuse Me, Miss." Yeah, and you were saying that you you didn't want to put that out right away. You didn't. Know yeah, that was to... that was almost the first single. I thought I was scared of that one. I ain't think people would be ready for that. I thought it was too far left. But at the same time, you putting out this joint, and this yeah. is different too. Yeah, but it still got that knock. Like you still a boom, the beat. You 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 you're gonna get into the beat. All right, let's check it out. That'd be a nice yeah. different tour. Yeah, we're gonna went... do about six records though. First, like a, a EP, Jay Z, okay. Lenny Kravitz okay. EP. Then we okay. might go out on tour. Well, you you did the uh, collab with R. Kelly earlier this year and yeah. all that stuff that was going on with R. Kelly kind of yeah. drowned out the album but it was a great album yeah thanks and then and now you got uh, Lenny Kravitz and to me that opens you up to a whole nother audience yeah that's what it's about like after you know you make so many solo albums it's just about being creative and doing different things you know what I'm saying and uh, on this uh, particular song I think like uh, I think that the different ra- different kind of radio stations are going to pick up on oh, this oh yeah that's that's all across I'm the feeling board. it I'm yeah. feeling it now like, like can't hear Jay-Z on an alternative station yeah. or something. That's right after P.O.D. Yeah, that's hot. Coming up next hour, Jay-Z. How was that experience on, the, uh, on that Sprite Liquid Mix tour because you were mixed up yeah. with, with different artists like that? Yeah, it was cool. Like, I mean, just to see the um the different audience, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Mingling with each other. There was so much speculation at that time regarding his relationship with Beyonce because the first really big song that they did together was coming out in 2003. It was called Bonnie and Clyde, 03 Bonnie and Clyde. So there were rumors at that moment that they were engaged and a listener went there. Hi, Jay-Z. This that's that's my girl, Strawberry. Hey, Strawberry. <laughs> All I need to know, what's going on with you and Beyonce? I'm, I'm focused. You focused? She's focused, man. That's just my homie. We're not engaged. Mm-hmm. My homie. Break that down, Hover. Okay. I just do. Okay. Just your homie. Yeah, my homie. Okay. Good so since they were homies, I said, well, who was your ideal woman? I like, I like smart girls, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, just beautiful girls all over the world. You're never going to be satisfied like it's, if, if, if it's physical beauty because mm-hmm. it's beautiful women everywhere. Mm-hmm. I know, it's a lot. Yeah. I've been everywhere. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? No, I, I just been everywhere. Yeah. I'm not saying, stop yeah. that, man. Yeah. But um, well, I, I like now. smart I girls. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you like smart women. Smart. Clearly, his ideal woman was Beyonce. And they would marry several years later in 2006. One of the things that I always love to do with Jay-Z, and you kind of hear it, is I would always kind of get him connected with the listeners. And I wanted to share this interaction that he had with a mother and a daughter. Check this out. Oh, my God. I swear it will never be over for Hova, especially in my heart. I swear. I promise you. I promise you. Even Mom Deuce love you. Mom Deuce is right here. I'm telling you, we're going crazy. Yes, he's going to call Hold on, I don't want him to hang up on me, Jay-Z. Yeah. I love you. Thank you. I swear I love you. I was hyperventilating. I've been holding on for 21 minutes. Put, put, my, dukes huh? put my dukes my on the phone. Put my dukes on the phone. Hi, hi, how are you? Listen, um, this is Delfina. I'm from Philly. We're from South Bronx. We love you. We're from the Bronx. I'm from South Wait a minute. Calm down. Wait a minute. We're living in Philly right now, but we're from the South Bronx. And Jay-Z, I don't care. I'm Mom Dukes. My baby. 
Mercedes 21. I'm, listen, we love you. We Thank love you. you and keep it coming. She's on the online street team, and, and we want to come and see you tonight. I, I, I just want to say, I just want to say, yeah, you got my heart beating. Hold on, okay, hold on. Let me see. Hello, hello. Jay-Z? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Can I have, hold on. Can, can I say hi one more time? Yeah. Say hello. Hey. Okay. And I wanted to share this, too, right here. This could be a little forewarning to what would eventually happen with him and Dame Dash and Rockefeller. Check out this advice that he gives to a young up-and-coming rapper. I rap with him and I'm trying to get on. And my manager BSing, so I wanted to ask his advice. I mean, what should I do? Yeah, you can't play around with your life, man. Your life, you know what I'm saying? You ain't got no time to waste. If your manager BSing, you should just have it straight up with him. Like, fam, listen, I'm serious about what I'm trying to do. You ain't serious, and you, you got to let him go, man. I don't care if it's your, your brother or whoever, man. This is about your life. You got you to gotta, you gotta do it right, man. Well, how about that? Blueprint Hove. Thank you so much for listening to the Backstory Podcast. I am so excited that I was able to share those insights. Um, I, you know, I was just at that concert and I was just watching Love Song and I just felt that I needed to share this podcast and share these insights. So thank you all so much for listening. Coming up next on the Backstory Podcast. Kobe, I've been waiting to do this too, man. I ain't gonna lie, because like when Kobe put some throwback pics and them old interviews and you see Jay-Z and this everybody from before they are where they are right now i might i know i officially made it if i get on this kobe cole <laughs> podcast you know what i'm saying and if i get a throwback thursday posted up with me too i made it baby you know what i'm saying <laughs> dj artist entrepreneur motivational speaker funny father of Assad, yes. dj Khaled. thanks for listening to the backstory podcast i'm your host kobe cole Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level.